I'm just going to read uh, this morning from uh, Ephesians, the, the second chapter. And I'll start at verse 1. And it says, And you has he quickened, you has he enlivened and, gi- and given life to, imputed life to, who were dead spiritually in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of the direction and the rulership of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, that spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we, those that are in Christ, all had our lifestyle in times past being directed by the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, others, those that were unsaved, in the state that, in the condition that we were prior to Christ. But God, like the buts, the buts are in, in the scriptures, they're very, very incredible because when you see them, especially in the epistles, when you see that word but, it is a contrasting conjunction. And so what it's saying here is this is what we were and are no longer. This is who we are in Christ. This is our proper image and our proper identity. So the first thing that that word but does is show you a contrast. Then the conjunction separates the two. We're separated from all of that. That's why in the scriptures you'll see in Romans 8 verse 1 where it says in the original Koine Greek, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Again, if you see it like you might see it in the King James translation, according, not according to them that walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's not in the original whatsoever. It's not in the original Greek manuscripts, minuscules, majuscules, and in any edition, really, of the Koine Greek. It's just not in there. It does belong in the fourth verse of, of Rome, Romans, the eighth chapter, but it is definitely not who we are. So in other words, whether we, as those that are in Christ, whether we cease to function experientially in the reality of who we are in Christ, there's still no condemnation towards us because we're in his son. Because if there were, he would have to have condemned his son who paid for all of our sins. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. So when it says, but God, and he's the only one that does the separating, and can give us a proper contrast. But God, who is what? Rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. And boy, I'll tell you, this word dead is finding all kinds of confusion because some will teach that death speaks of extinction. In any language, death is never extinction, it's always separation. That's why in Genesis 2.17, when the command of God was given to Adam and Eve in the midst of a beautiful environment, to not eat of every single tree you want, but just don't eat of this, because when you do, it says in certain translations, in Genesis 2.17, you will die. The Hebrew says, in dying, you will die. In other words, in death, death is separation from God. That's what sin causes, a separation. Since there's this separation from God, that's why all men die physically. That's what it's teaching in in Genesis 2.17. In dying, separated from me, you'll die physically. Thank God for us in Christ. In Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1, the day of one's death is greater and better than the day of one's birth because we enter into the reality of an eternal future with Christ in an exchange of an intimate fellowship that nothing in time will ever interrupt in that eternal exchange as revealed in Revelations 2 and verse 17. So, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love 
wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, separated as a result of being in sin. Because in Habakkuk 1.13, it says his eyes are so pure that he cannot look upon sin. When it says look, it's not that he doesn't see it. It's just that he can't have anything to do with it. Because in 1 John 3.20, God knows all things. And even though when we, the Bible teaches us that we, in Christ, as a believer, we don't have a past, it doesn't mean that we didn't go through it. It doesn't mean that we didn't learn by it. It just means that God doesn't treat us after our past. Because if, for him to forget that, he wouldn't know all things. And he most certainly, scripturally, in 1 John 3.20, he does know all things, and thank God because of that, even when our hearts our minds, when we don't function in him, will condemn us. He never does. He has to bring it to the place in 1 John 3 and verse 21 where there will be no, there will be no condemnation in his love. In other words, when we truly experience who we are in Christ, when we have a proper experience based upon proper knowledge of the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, then even in our experience, there won't be any condemnation because in God's love for us, there isn't any because he condemned sin in Christ on Calvary. Thank God. So when we understand those truths, which are very beautiful, which we can never and we never will come to the end of them because in Ephesians 2, 7, we'll see it here, that in the ages, the eternity of the eternities to come, he will continually show us his kindness and richness, and we can even see that. That in the ages to come, in Ephesians 2, verse 7, he, that he might, what? That he will show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So there isn't any condemnation in us. There isn't any at all. So, even when, in Ephesians 2, 5, when we were dead in sins, he enlivened us together with Christ. Because remember, death is separation. You just have an existence. The reason that we say that here is this, and let's, let me read this scripture here, because these are some beautiful truths that only God the Holy Spirit can bring out through his written word, and it's only God the Holy Spirit who can take the written word and make it a living experience in us. Only God the Holy Spirit can do that. No man can do that. Matter of fact, the gift that man is to the body in Ephesians 4 eight, doesn't even function properly apart from Christ's headship. And thank God for, for those truths. But this is what we see, and this is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 are bringing out. This is 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ constrains us. The, the, the Greek word for that is, the love of Christ, it holds us together, protects us, secures us, and is our only place of rest. It is like, it would be like the carpenter who only, he's working by himself, he can't hold, measure, cut, and do everything all at once. He needs a vice, something to hold it in its proper place so he can operate on it. This is the word constrain here in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 16. For the love of Christ constrains who? Us. Who is us? All those that are in Christ. Can he constrain all those that are not? The answer is no, he does not. Now, Look what it says, because we thus judge. The word judge here is not judging, <laughs> judging. And this is where even in the scriptures we need to know the difference between discernment, which comes through brokenness and submission to Christ and his word, again through the power of the Holy Spirit, and judging. All of our sins have been judged, and we were judged on Calvary. And what that teaches us is we have no right to judge anybody. We do in proper place in order in a local assembly. There is adjustments in how to function in order that do affect not only our conduct, but the conduct and can have an effect on the local assembly too. No question about that. But again, it says, because we thus discern, 
that if one died for all, did one die for all? Well, we see that. We see that again in Romans, the fifth chapter. And you can look at when the sin nature was passed on in the 12th verse all the way to the 21st verse. By one man's disobedience, it says, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many were made what? Brand new in him, as it brings out in those verses that we that uh, God is bringing to all of our minds this morning. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all what? Dead. Why did one have to die? Because as far as God was concerned, all of humanity was separated from him and dead. Existing, but dead, separated. Again, death never means extinction. That will do away with the false teaching again of of the annihilationist. Okay, because in Ecclesiastes 3, Verse 14, whatsoever God does, he what? He does forever. He created man in his image. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and in Genesis chapter 5, 1 and 2, he created man in his image, in his very image. And whatsoever God does, he does forever. And we can see that crystal clear in in the scriptures. So, Why did he die? Because all were dead. Now watch what it says in verse 15. In that he died for all, they that live. Does it say all live? No. Only those that live. Who are those only in terms of in God's eyes are those that are actually living now, have life. It's those that are in his son, Jesus Christ. That is brought out in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. We have the eternal life that Christ is. He is our life. That's Christ is our life. In Colossians 3, verse 4. Colossians 3, verse 3 says, you died. When we read that in Colossians 3, verse 3, in the King James, it says, you, you, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. The original says this, you died, exclamation point. And now, in, your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ, who is our life, when he appears, we will also appear with him in glory. That's why, it's, that's why we teach it this way. Listen, trying to live the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible because Christ is our life. So it makes it so necessary for us to submit our wills to him who, in John 19.30, finished the work. I mean all of it every single bit of it, and even in that sense, it'll do away with all the other falseness and lies of the Scriptures through the father of all lies in John 8, verse 44. So we see again here in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, in that he died for all that they which live, look what it says, should not from that point on live unto themselves. But there's the separation not living unto self, not living unto my own opinions, okay? Not living unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. That's Christ. Okay, so the beauty of this, the beauty of these, this truth, again, is brought out in Ephesians, the second chapter. Again, in verse 4, it says, But God, who was rich... In mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, separated in these sins, has enlivened us together with Christ. For by grace are you saved, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. The book of Ephesians brings out, like no other portion in the scriptures, the height of the position of those that are in Christ. Many in the Old Covenant, prior to Christ's coming, being crucified and sending down as a promise in John chapter 14 and verses 16 and 17, and when he died, he went up and sent down the Holy Spirit to form the church in Acts the second chapter. We see that crystal clear. He formed the church. God did. It's his church. That's why we teach you don't go to church. We are the church. Matter of fact, the word church is never even in the original. It's ecclesia. It's assembly, a local assembly. Ek, Greek word, out. Ecclesia, called. We are called out of the world because we're in Christ. Right? Christ, the whole time in his humanity, when he walked the face of the earth, in John 17 and verse 14, was not of this world. 
And in John 17, verse 16, neither will we. In other words, there's not a thing about us in Christ that has a single thing to do with the world. And you know what the lie of the enemy is? Is to convince even the Christian they have certain rights to be like the world. Well, I don't know about you folks, but I know that I have to be reminded of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. God forbid that I should glory. What do we glory in rights we think we have? Some think they have a right to glory in being offended. Some think they have a right to glory in disagreement. Some think they have a right to do that. Some think they have a right, Christians, they have a right to not forgive. Never. To not forgive. To not be reconciled. To live this way. They have that right. When it's clearly brought out in Exodus 11, verse 7, God put a difference between Israel, those that were his, and Egypt, those of the world. Egypt is a type of the world system. He made it clear. He puts a difference in 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Those that are on the Lord's side are on the Lord's side. Those that are not are in the world and functioning under the prince and power of the air, where Jesus said in John 12, 31, and 1430, he has nothing to do with Satan, who, through a time, through usurping, is prince over this world system. We're not to be anything like it. Our language is not, is not the same. Nothing about us is the same. Nothing about us is the same. We see this beautifully brought out. Thank God. And truthfully, who are we? And this has to do with proper image. Am I to identify myself with anything other than who Christ has made me to be in him and who he is in me? Is there? No. We're heavenly, heavenly people. Not just heavenly, we are a church people. The word church, remember when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and upon this rock, massive foundation rock himself, I will build what? My what? Church. Wasn't talking about a building, folks. No, it wasn't. We can get deceived by tradition, ceremony. All I know is this, that in the scriptures, in the scriptures, and you can see it in Numbers, the book of Numbers, you can see it in Hebrews 13, 13 and 14. Everything Jesus did, he went outside the camp. Organized, structured religion. He went outside the camp. Did everything he did. Every single thing he did. Where man would take the authority. And we can even see that crystal clear in the scriptures. Because in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 4, what was the one thing that he had? And it's very strong. It's not brought out as strong in the King James in Revelations 2, 4 as it is in the original. But where it says somewhat, this I have somewhat. And first he did build them up and what they were functioning in, in the person of Christ and the accomplishment of his work. And that's our life, by the way. His person and the accomplishment of his work, which no man could ever accomplish. No man, none of us, none of us. And that's why even a man with a gift, he doesn't function in it properly unless submitted to Christ the head. There's no question about that. Okay, there's just none. Now, there are all scores of heavenly people. Did people, when they died in the Old Covenant, which we term the Old Testament, did they go to heaven when they received Christ in terms of the sacrifices and what it was teaching in type? Their faith looked forward to the cross. Ours looks back to the cross. That's why in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of Jesus Christ, of whom... The world is crucified unto me. What's it? We understand that. God, for all of us in Christ, crucified everything about this world. It's music, it's dress, everything. He crucified it. If you don't believe it, oh, well, here's the scriptures again. Genesis, the fourth chapter. Cain, in brutal anger, refused to bring the type of Christ as his sacrifice like his brother Abel did. He killed him in Genesis 4, verses 8. He was questioned. He said, am I my brother's keeper? That's <laughs> a Christian can live like that in the flesh, by the way. Am I my brother's keeper? It's no concern of me. 
I'm going to make more of my offense than I am of forgiveness and reconciliation. Foolishness. The foolishness of it. He went out from the presence of God, it says, in Genesis 4 and verse 16. And verse 17 says he built a city. Do you know who actuated it? Who was the murderer in John 8, verse 44? From the beginning in eternity, it was Satan. Who was the first murderer in the Bible? It was Cain. The hatred of Christ, the hatred of his person, and the accomplishment of his work that only he could do was hated. Then the whole world system is built upon the murder and rejection of God in Christ, his substitute, his only substitute whereby man would be reconciled. That's it. And then you follow it down, all the arts, the music, everything is to make the world as good a place as it can be apart from a crucified Savior. Man, did, did Cain, was Cain a religious man? Yeah, he brought it. He brought sacrifices. The only thing is he brought them from the cursed ground in Genesis 3, verse 19. Anything that we think that we can bring before God outside of Christ is something that's cursed by God already, other than Christ, who took all of our curse, our, our sins. And by the way, when Christ died for us, he did die for us. Listen, he died for us, he died as us, and he paid for all of our sins as that beautiful sacrifice. So all of those that were in the Old Covenant, are they a heavenly people? Yes. Is there a difference? Is there a difference? Yeah, we are a church people. We are his church. Matthew 16, verse 18. That's why it says, I will, future. I will build my church. Not man. Not man with a gift that's supposed to glorify the person of Christ and his work that he accomplished. And by the way, that's another point in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We, God is, is telling us what fellowship is. Fellowship in the Greek is kinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Okay, it's, it's kinonia. And you know what fellowship is for believers? It's setting aside private interests and private desires and plans for the benefit of the whole. You know what it says and what I love about this? is it says, and it's true for every one of us, in Psalm 119, 165, it says, Great peace have they that love your law, your word, and nothing will, will offend them. Nothing will cause them to stumble. If a Christian stumbles in relationship to each other, what, what would be the cause of it? A lack of forgiveness. A lack of reconciliation. And when you don't have forgiveness, you experientially don't have the confirmation of God loving one another. Because that's how it flows. That's exactly how it flows. That's why humility in every single one of us is so very needed. And that's why there is an order. There is an order in the church that God never violates. Did you know that God will never violate the honor of his order? Because his order has to do with his will. His will has to do with his word. And his word is his nature. God doesn't violate his own nature. That's what makes it essential for us to have proper order. Proper order. I mean, even when you deal with things with others personally, when you even follow the steps of doing it personally, and if it didn't stay that way, it gets known. And even in that, it causes tremendous division. Things can go in. We need to be so careful about what goes into our minds. Because even if we don't believe it, if it goes in, now I still have to deal with it. And that can take a long time. That can take a very, very, very long time. Now, and again, that's why, that's why headship in a family is so vital. Headship in a family. The husband being head over the wife making proper decisions that not only affect himself, but his wife also. And that's a sad state of affairs. Very sad state of affairs. We may want certain things in certain areas that we're okay with, but when they offend us and when we don't want to forgive, we withdraw. Seriously. 
You know what keeps Christians not fellowshipping even when and where they should fellowship? It's a lack of forgiveness because they were offended. And the offense means more than the love that even forgave their own sins and forgave my sins. Has he removed, has God removed for Christians in Christ, has God removed all distance between the Christian in Christ and himself? Yes. Christ is that manifestation. He is. He is that manifestation. There's no question about that in the scriptures. So as we wrap this up this morning, and this morning we're going to be uh, brief, this is the beauty that's being brought out in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But God, who was rich in mercy in Ephesians 2, 4, for his great love, how great was his love? God so loved the world, the world there in John 3, verse 16, is the mass of humanity. Not the world system, okay? Because in John 17, verse 9, Jesus never prayed for the world. He only prayed for his own. That's crystal clear in the scriptures. He never prayed for the world. Read it, John 17, verse 9. He had a desire to save the world. He did. But he doesn't violate an individual's will because to do so would be to violate himself. Because even when Adam fell, did he ever take away free will? The person that commits the crime and has to go to jail, their free will still functioning? Without any question about it. It's manifest. Clearly. And God has shown them that too. Because even in the fallen state, without any teaching, you have the signature of God, his creation, his physical creation in Psalm 19, 1 through 6. You see it crystal clear in the scriptures. Huh, what a testimony. <sighs> what a testimony. Well, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together, for by grace are you saved, and he's raised us up together. Now, are we raised up together positionally in Christ right now? Are we? Yes, that's positional truth. Christ as a man is seated there. We know two reasons, and that's why the resurrection of Christ, brought out in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the resurrection of Christ has everything to do with Christianity. There wouldn't be any without it. There wouldn't be a church. There wouldn't be a born-again person at any dispensation or time period. It just never would be. But here we have the beauty of this. He's raised us up together and made us, what, sit. Together in the heavenlies, where? In Christ. Is Christ seated? Yes, because as a man, he finished the work. He represents us in Christ. Did you? He represents us in himself, with us in him, before the Father. And even there, he intercedes with us. Makes it very important who we choose to fellowship with, too, by the way. It's very, very key in who we choose to be around. It's very, very important, folks. Extremely so. Not that we don't love everybody. Not that we don't. Okay? But we never, there's never an exchange of fellowship. And remember, let's go back to that word in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Fellowship there is kinonia. Okay? Fellowship, this is fellowship for the Christian. It is in conversation and exchange of the person of Christ and the work that he's accomplished. That defines fellowship, and not another thing describes fellowship. Not one single thing in the scriptures other than that. Why? Because he's raised us up together. Up means positionally off the earth. We're in it, but we're not of it. In John 17, verse 16, neither was he. We're in it, but not of it. That's what makes those words in and of, so very vital in understanding the scriptures. He's raised us up together and made us, he's made us, made us meet, qualified us to sit together because Christ is our qualification, period, nothing in ourselves, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages, the eternity of the eternities to come, he's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace. In his kindness toward us, through 
Christ Jesus. For by grace you are what? Saved. Through what? Faith. And even that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should begin to boast in himself. For we are what? What does it say here? His workmanship. Boy, would that do away with the lordship salvation stuff that goes around and has been going around for quite some time in the church today. That you're saved. But if you yourself don't produce fruit, if he's not just your, not just your savior, but he has the Lord over you and cause you to produce fruit, you can't be born again. And you would not believe the names of the men who will teach correctly, but who will teach that very thing. Well, what do you do with that? And what do you do with Hosea 14, verse 8? You're, their fruit is from me. Why is it called the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is he, the God, the Holy Spirit, who takes the fruit of the travail of Christ and what he accomplished in his person, and the accomplishment of his work on Calvary in Isaiah 53, verse 11, and makes it known to us. Oh, boy. These truths, these truths, these truths are amazing. For we are his workmanship. Look what it says. Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. Whose works? Look what it says. Which God has before ordained. They must have been all the works of Christ. Yes. What is my part? I'll tell you, listen, what is my part? What makes it simple for us? Obedience. What happens if I don't know how to obey? What happens if I don't know how to interpret the word? What will I do? I'll become my own interpreter. I will become the theologian and the scholar, <laughs> the own private interpreter, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, I'll privately interpret it. In other words, I'll privately interpret um, and, and I'll think it's okay. I don't want to live in forgiveness. I don't want to live in reconciliation. I don't want to live in any of those things. As a matter of fact, I'll even use those things to continue in sin. And any of us could do that. That's why we need obedience. Because obedience is my place. The results are his. The results have already been accomplished in Christ. That's why it makes it necessary. That's why he didn't take away the will. The will submitted, okay? No longer is it the mind, the emotions, the conscience, and self-consciousness in control through a fallen will. But when the will's given over, now it's the person of Christ and the accomplishment of his work. You know, and did you know that every single thing that God did in Christ for you and I, he did for us each and every single one of us individually? I mean, if you can count the stars, which are, the Bible says are without number, or the grains of sand, do you think he knows every single thing about us? And did he do it for us individually? Or was it just one blanket thing? This church is made up of individuals. Proper fellowship is made up of when individuals have a right relationship in, in an experiential exchange of the life with Christ individually. And if it's not that way, you won't come together. You can be sure of that. Something will be, you will consider something more sacred more sacred than, than coming together. I mean, we, listen, in the church, in any relationship, uh, come on, and we're going to stop because there was so much more, but we're going to stop. Listen, in any relationship as a Christian, tell me, I don't care what it is, and the most intimate relationship is marriage. Not going to be conflict? Not going to be adjustments? Not going to be failure? Not going to be any of that? What makes it work? It's Christ between two individuals. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. And the most intimate, you know, I'm going to tell you something. That's the enemy. The church is made up of marriages. That's why he hates proper headship. He hates marriage because it reflects and is, is teaching us what God is towards people and what Christ is towards his church and what Christ will even be towards restored Israel in a millennial reign. 
There's no question about these things. You tell, but what is the problem? What's the device of Satan in any relationship? What is it that we become ignorant, and the ignorance can be, I don't know, or I choose to be rebellious. I might know the truth, but I don't care about it. Do you know what it says in Hosea 4, verse 6? It says, and he's, it's Hosea, the Holy Spirit through Hosea, speaking to a nation completely backslidden. Look at the first chapter of Hosea, and you can see it. He said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's what he said. It's not that they didn't have the knowledge. It's that they rejected it. Just like when Christ came in John 1.11, it says that he came unto his own, the very nation of Israel, and his own, and the King James kind of sweetens it. They, they, they received him not. No, it's crystal clear. They rejected him. They said in John 18.40, not this man, and it was the religious crowd of the day. That's right. Religion. Religion has nothing to do with Christianity. Christianity is a proper relationship with God through Jesus Christ in Him alone, by grace alone, by absolute dependence and faith alone, which we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are completely gifts that you can't separate. That's why every time I depend upon God, it releases grace. And grace releases and gives me the capacity to have more faith, more dependence, more and more. And what a difference. But you mean to tell me what is the thing that the, that the enemy does to separate even local assemblies here, here and everywhere? What? Lack of forgiveness. You see it in 2 Corinthians 2. You know, in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and people, listen, when we're in the flesh, we don't like being called out. Because the Bible, you read, your, you read the epistles and you tell me God wasn't dealing with the flesh. You read the Old Covenant. Read the Psalms. And he never did. I know one thing, when I'm in the flesh and I don't want God, I don't want anyone dealing with me. <laughs> don't you dare. You want to make a bet? And that's true with all of us. That's crystal clear. Crystal clear. That's why we need to exhort one another and not put up with certain things and think it's okay and still think you can have fellowship. My God, there can't be. There can't, there's just no such thing as that. There isn't. Because fellowship is the person of Christ and his work accomplished in an experiential exchange. And if I don't have it in my own life, I don't have it to give. So let's minus them and let's all us get together. May I warn you, don't do that. Because it's wrong. Very wrong. It's not of God. It isn't. It's not of God. And not one single thing about it. But the fact of the matter is, when I'm in the flesh, I don't like being called out, do I? Why? Galatians 5 verse 17 says, They that are in the flesh is contrary to the Spirit. For they, because one, if I function in the Spirit, it's contrary to the flesh. Meaning if I function under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who takes the word, things of Christ shows them unto me, I'm not going to live in the flesh. But if I don't want the spirit, I'm, the, I, I'm going to live in the flesh, and I don't want anything to do with the spiritual. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with the spiritual. And even when you deal with things personally with believers and do it in a proper order, when that order hasn't reached the experience, you're either going to withdraw, okay, or you're going to want others to draw near you where you withdrawn. And again, not biblical. It is just not biblical. Not that we don't pray for one another. And not that we don't love one another. And not that we shouldn't honor one another. But we are to honor, in Ephesians 5 verse 21, we are to honor each other in the reverence of Christ in the vessel. Okay? And it's not knowing them in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16 in the flesh. But I want to close with this. This is my third close. Three strikes and I'm out. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, it brings it out clearly. It is a church. Corinth was a church. They were born again. But a young man was having sexual relationships with his stepmother, who was married to his dad. They didn't care. It just went on. 
They were so busy with themselves, making so much of their gifts and what they thought they had apart from Christ, they were blowing off sin. Blowing it off like we shouldn't. Blowing it off. Then finally, the guy gets right. <laughs> finally, that, finally, that guy got right. And this is where, and I said Hebrews, and it's 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, in verses 11 to 13. But finally, when the guy, here's the two wrongs that can happen when we're in the flesh as believers. Letting sin go by and excusing it. Again, and I'm sure... Michael could tell you that, the longer you, longer you live, to be, to be transparent and honest, the less the excuses are and the less you really even want them. You know, you don't excuse it and say, oh, that's okay, you speed bump that thing, that's okay, that's not so bad. Or you don't make an, you don't make an excuse to continue to live in it, right? You just don't do that anymore. You just, you've had enough, hopefully, after 69 years, you know, and I get surprised still to find out, geez, this area stuff, I got to grow? Yeah. <laughs> okay, going to do it. But here's the fact, the two things. First, they allowed sin and didn't even, didn't even, it didn't care to them because they were so, listen to this one, self-occupied as Christians. They were so self-occupied as Christians. And so then finally the guy does get right. And you know what? They wouldn't forgive him. They would not forgive them. I have lovingly, like the grace of God that deals with me and my sin and my failure, the way he's dealt with me, you deal with others. You deal with them. But one area, one area, where there's a disagreement or something, you forget a thousand others of investment, teaching, preaching, life laid down, and you use it as some excuse, and any of us can do that in the flesh. A lack of forgiveness. Well, here it is. What is a satanic device in the church today? Number one, it's allowing sin to go on, okay, and just blowing it off. It's okay. And you know, sometimes we'll do that because well, that meant that would mean that I wouldn't be able, if I wanted to be transparent with God, that means that I couldn't live in my sins. But because I am, it's got to be okay for them, and we'll call that fellowship. <laughs> Wrong. There's no fellowship. God, and something, well, God, God gives me grace to get right. Yeah, that's right, but he doesn't give us grace to live in sin in Romans 6, 1 and Romans 6, 15. And God forbid that I should do evil in Romans 3, verse 8, that grace may abound. It just is not the way it is. So they wouldn't forgive him. Look what it says. Wherefore, in, a, in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, it says, so that contrary wise, you ought rather to forgive him. Who's he talking about right here? That guy in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, that was living in that affair with his stepmom, having a sexual relationship with her, and then finally he got right. When a person gets right, then what? What do you do? Forgive him and comfort him. <laughs> Forgive him and comfort him like only the love of God can do. Forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one would be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you, I beg of you, that you would confirm your love toward him. No, I'd rather be offended and stay away. Pfft. Spiritual wimpwood. I would rather be hurt and offended. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. You know, we've... The, the scriptures have been teaching us for a while. We know in some degree, and we're all growing in it, we'll never come to the end of his love in Ephesians 3, verse 19. But I do know, and we do know, that he loves us. How do we know that we love him? It's obedience. Because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 10, said, here in his love. Who is love? God is love. Here in his love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. 
So what is my obedience? My obedience is I submit to my will to Christ who fulfilled everything about his Father who is love. And then when I do that, that flows. His love is the cause of my obedience. His grace is the cause of my obedience. That's why he never gives grace for disobedience. But it's the only way to get out. It's not the answer to sin, but it is the answer for sin. And my obedience is his love returned. My personal obedience is his love returned. And so here's what it says, that you in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, that you be obedient in what? All things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, because we're one. We have the same teaching. We have the same Christ. One Lord, one God, one baptism. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses four through six. To whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Do you understand that? Where does forgiveness come from? The person of Christ and the result of the accomplishments of his work. That's where it comes from. And to deny forgiveness is to deny Christ, to deny the glory that he has accomplished to his Father for us and to the ones we refuse to forgive. And then in headship, we end up leading others, which is a very sad state of affairs. Again, and any of us can do these things in the flesh and probably have. <laughs> but thank God we can have right teaching, which has to do with Christ. Look. To whom you forgave it in the person of Christ, I forgave it. Why? Look at 2.11. Lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we, not, we are not, what? Ignorant of his devices. What's a device? Something he uses to separate, especially Christians. If he can separate the personal Christian from a proper experiential exchange of fellowship with Christ individually, he's going to cause it between members in the body all day long. And I, I don't know about you, but what kind of air would you rather breathe? I want clean air. Listen, now I'm not, t listen to me. I am only clean by the grace of Almighty God. And I want to tell you something. He does it every single morning and all throughout the day here, constantly. Huh? That thought's wrong. Okay, I, I'm confessing it, Lord, sorry. I, I <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know in this Bible, all those that he used... Did they fail? What kept them going? They had forgiveness with their God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How am I going to have fellowship with you if I don't have it? I'm going to hold on to something, a device, and be captured in Ephesians 2, uh, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. Listen, we don't, listen, we don't oppose one another. We think, the enemy convinces us that, the lie, that a Christian can oppose another Christian. I don't know, I thought God did away with all that through Christ, did he? I mean, if he did away with all distance between us and himself, would he not have done that? And would he, we not have that in fellowship with one another? Did. There is no question about these things. There is no question about it. And that keeps us from being private interpreters. Right, privately interpreting. I call that the Swiss cheese Bible. I don't like that part, cut it out. No, I don't like that one, cut that out. <laughs> but you know, I know one thing. He's always dealing with me and confirming his love towards me, which is forgiveness. I need it because I can't continue to grow in grace and knowledge in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, because everything he does, we saw it, is by grace. Grace is him adding to you and I Everything that we don't deserve in our position in Christ, hopefully it flows into the experience. Mercy is God's subtraction. He subtracted what you and I should get, and he put it on Christ on Calvary, so that through his death and mine receiving that, I could have life, all that that's added to me as a result of his grace. Boy, that's what we have. And furthermore, the law, who was the law for? Was it for the, for, for the godly in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9? Absolutely not. It was for the lawless. 
The only other option a Christian has if they don't receive grace through being humbled in 1 Peter 5, 6 and James 4, uh, verse 6, is to put themselves under some form of a law and they have to perform. And you know what? Doesn't work, does it, folks? Nothing works outside of his grace and humility. Thank God we have that. Thank God we can have a fellowship. And thank God we can continue in relationships. We don't have to be phony. In Romans 12, 9, let love be without pretending. Dissimulation, pretending, where we get our, our English word hypocrisy. Pretending that we love one another and live in disobedience <laughs> towards him. Thank God we have all this. We have so much to learn. I have so much to learn. So much to learn. But when we fail each other, when we fail each other, this is why I always teach what the Bible teaches us. By His grace, by the way. And He has to constantly bring it to my remembrance. When there's sin, I go to God and then I go to the individual. Now, when that sin... When that sin affects the body, then what must they do? The instruction in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, was the man who wouldn't get right with sin was to be excluded from fellowship. Should I fellowship with someone when they're living in sin? Should I? No. It's that simple. Because you know what? It glorifies God and it protects me and it also protects the person and allows God to deal with them and I don't get in the way. He loves us so much. He really does. And we love each other. We need to pray for each other, forgive each other, exhort one another, and edify one another in Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we just th are so thankful for your grace. I am. It is your love, Father, your unconditional love, your grace, your mercy, is incredible. I don't know of anything like it. There's nobody like you, Father. There's no one like you manifested in your Son. There's no one like the Holy Spirit who's the only one who could take the things of Christ in a proper way and show them to us who are in Christ without condemning us, but to show us who we are in Christ. We are so thankful for these truths. Thankful for each and every single person, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.